Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE for this online event, Survival of the City, hosted by LSE Cities. My name is Joe Beale, and I'm Emeritus Professor and Distinguished Policy Fellow based at LSE Cities at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm very pleased today to be able to welcome David Cutler and Edward Glazer um, to the LSE uh, and to this webinar. David is the Otto Eckstein Professor of Applied Economics at Harvard University. He holds joint appointments in the Economics Department, the School of Public Health, and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He served in Bill Clinton's administration and was a senior healthcare advisor to Barack Obama. As well as, or uh, well, among his numerous academic books and articles, is his celebrated book, Your Money or Your Life Strong Medicine for America's Healthcare System. Edward Glazer is the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, also at Harvard University, where he's taught uh, since 1992. He's also Director for the City's Research Program at the International Growth Center at LSE in Oxford, and has also published numerous academic books and articles on urban economics, economic growth, law, health and inequality, and is the best-selling author of The Triumph of the City, published by Penguin in 2004. Today, we're going to be um, having a discussion based on their new jointly authored book, uh, the Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. It's, this is its uh, British um, cover. I think it might be different for the American edition. Um, I've read it and um, I'm fascinated and looking forward to this discussion very much indeed. The book brings the tools of economics to debates that have been raging over the last year and a half at least, uh, about urban life and death during the pandemic. Um, and indeed, echoing the late Jane Jacobs and her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, brings a deep policy engagement and understanding to uh, this, uh, this period of uncertainty facing our cities. Um, I'm going to hand over to um, Ed and David in a moment, but first just to say for the Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE post COVID with LSE and COVID in capitals. It's an online event that's being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As as usual with LSE events, um, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to David and Ed. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to me and I will pose as many as I possibly can to the speakers. Let us know your name and affiliation because we're particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni. I'm now delighted to hand over to um, Ed, first of all, who's going to kick us off. So over to you, Ed. Thank you so much, Joe. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so grateful to LSE uh, Cities for hosting this and to the LSE in general. I'm especially grateful to everyone who is um, spending their, their time with us today. Um, 
So if I were giving this talk uh, in 2019 or earlier, I would have started with something about the remarkable resurgence of cities like London since the difficult times of the 1970s and 1980s and their comeback and the associated ails that come along with that comeback, especially the lack of affordable housing that stems from an unwillingness to allow more growth, to, to allow more building. Yet in 2020, we were reminded that there are many demons of density, and the most terrible of these is contagious disease. Plague has been with urban areas for at least 2,500 years. The plague of Athens is the first well-documented, well-described urban plague. Uh, And that great outbreak struck down a city that was really doing everything one could possibly have hoped that a city would do, right? In terms of creating collaborative networks of genius, it's just impossible to beat 5th century Athens, which, which gave us democracy, which gave us great sculpture and architecture. It gave us philosophy. It gave us math. It gave us history itself, right? And it flourished at the center of the Mediterranean world. Yet, unfortunately, all of that success, economic and military, excited the rivalry of Sparta. And when Sparta demanded that Athens step down, Pericles refused and the Peloponnesian War was on. This was the backdrop for the plague of Athens. For Pericles had a cunning military plan uh, that involved bringing in the Athenians behind the walls of the city, which would hopefully protect them from the Spartan warriors, and then sending out the Athenian fleet to harass the coastline of the Peloponnese. Militarily, the plan worked beautifully, but a virus or bacteria can get in even when a Spartan hoplite cannot. And so disease entered through the port of Piraeus, laying waste to Athens. Thucydides was there, and he describes so vividly a society gone amok, right, as Deaths just came in a mysterious and awful way, killing perhaps one quarter of the Athenian population in in two years. Athens survived, of course, soldiered on for another quarter century before finally being defeated by Sparta. But in some sense, its place at the center of the Mediterranean world would never quite uh, resume. It would eventually move from being, let's say, the New York City of of the Mediterranean to perhaps being the Boston or perhaps even the Cambridge Mass of the the Mediterranean. And its glory would never quite be rekindled. An even more plague struck Constantinople in 541 CE when Yersinia Pestis, the Black Death, made its first appearance on on European shores, arguably being the force that stopped Justinian's attempt to reimpose the Pax Romana on the Mediterranean world. And as it came for century after century, in some sense, destabilizing the whole West and plunging us into into centuries of rural poverty, uh, feudalism, and warfare. But for most of the past 650 years, our cities have been far more robust to urban disease. In the third chapter of the book, we tell the story of how in the 19th century, cities not only survived the coming of of pandemic, but actually thrived. That partially reflected the fact that in that poorer world, people were willing to put up with the threat of death in order to succeed economically. But there's also a more positive story, which is, in some sense, the 19th century is the point in which governments stop being solely agents of death and start actually giving life as well. They gave life by building sewers. They gave life by building aqueducts. And you can see here that the the yellow fever, mosquito-borne pen, uh, disease that emerges out of Africa in the 18th century, cholera comes out of the Ganges Delta, carried over land, carried over sea to London, to New York. And they built infrastructure like the Croton Aqueduct, like Central Park. They built it because they made a mistake medically. They actually believed in in miasma, 
uh, rather than in contagion, which uh, led them to think that actually it was the ground itself that was infecting them. But it turned out that the public health implications of that were relatively benign. That in fact, that suggested they should drain the swamp and drain the swamp they did. And they were spending an enormous amount on health. And, and this is the real moment in which we see governments actually saving people's lives. And because of that, for much of the past century, we have been blessed by having relatively pandemic-free cities. And we've forgotten that cities can bring death as well as life. And then all of a sudden, COVID-19 happened. This shows the map of COVID prevalence in New York around April 30th, 2020. And you can see that just as plague enters through the city of Athens, cities remain the nodes on our global lattice of trade and travel. And so they are the ports of entry for viruses, as well as for goods and for new ideas. New York, Boston, New Orleans, Atlanta, these are the places that get the disease first. And then, of course, the disease spreads through dense urban streets. In Brazil, this is as of June 2020, you can see that slum prevalence, the prevalence of the population living in a favela is strongly associated with uh, getting the disease early on. This shows in India, the share of the population living in slums is strongly associated with having the disease. The remarkable work of Anup Malani, who did serological work looking at, looking at blood to see antibodies, showed that more than 15% of the members of many Mumbai slums had caught COVID by July of 2020, right? Almost a year and a half ago. And despite that, they, were, they didn't die because they were thin and they were young. Yet, of course, an airborne pandemic, unlike cholera, really can get everywhere. And so, you know, by November 2020, the disease had spread to some of the lowest density parts of America. Now, this disease has been accompanied by much more economic dislocation than the plagues of the past. After all, in a subsistence agricultural economy like that of medieval Europe, when Eusenia Pestis came again in 1350, that was a demographic disaster, human disaster, killing a third of the population. But it left the Europeans who survived much richer because land per capita, which is the ultimate coin of wealth in uh, an agricultural economy, had gone up. And in some sense, the wealth that remained fueled the urban renaissance through a greater demand of luxury goods that then you know, gave us the magic of 15th century Florence and 15th century Bruges. The industrial economy of 1918-1919 that was hit by the influenza pandemic, that suffered a short, sharp shock from the pandemic um, as factories closed down, as mines temporarily were disrupted. But ultimately, people kept on buying cars and ice boxes despite the pandemic. But over the course of the 20th century, when the factories closed, when they outsourced, when they automated, uh, the ability to serve a cappuccino with a smile wasn't a safe haven for workers in this age of automation. And yet those jobs can disappear in a heartbeat when the smile turns into a source of peril rather than a source of pleasure. And so there was enormous economic disruption that was only reduced by government expenditure on a massive, massive scale. Now, looking forward, the big question is whether or not urban office markets and cities as a whole will ever recover. The view that technology like this Zoom webinar right, will make face-to-face -face contact in the cities that enable that contact obsolete is not old. Alvin Toffler, writing in, in 1980, prophesied that you know, these new technologies would make face-to-face -face contact obsolete, would lead to forests of empty skyscrapers, just as the centrifugal innovations of the 20th century, like the car and radio and television and container ships, 
had made urban factories relatively obsolete. Right? He was writing in a time in which those technological innovations had destroyed what had been the largest industrial cluster in the United States in the 1950s, garment production, which had vanished in a short period of time. So it was natural for him to ask, why wouldn't these technologies, and this was the hot new stuff of the 1980s, make face-to-face -face industries like publishing and finance obsolete in cities? And yet for 40 years, he was completely and totally wrong because what these technologies did was that they made face-to-face -face contact ever more valuable, right? Because they increased the returns to innovation, because they increased the returns to being smart. And we are a social species that gets smart by being around other smart people. This is the Wallace office at Mayor Bloomberg City Hall, which is based on the Solomon Brothers trading floor. Trading floors are the ultimate example of very wealthy people who are willing to put up with a great deal of crowding because in their industry, knowledge is more important than space. Right. This is the Google campus. Right. If technology were killing off the need for face to face contact, why was it that these companies weren't sending their workers home, but were instead doing everything they could to make sure they were on top of each other, were connected with each other, were, were being around each other? Because that's how they thought that creativity would work. Right. Anyone who's ever taught knows the hard part about teaching is not knowing your subject material. It's knowing whether or not anything is getting through to your students. And we have these wonderful cues for communicating comprehension of confusion that have evolved over millions of years that are lost when we're not in the same room with one another. Now, looking forward, what we have learned during this year and you know, earlier, the wonderful work of Nick Bloom, randomized controlled trial, looking at Chinese call center workers, right, is that we can do simple tasks remotely, easily and well. We can maintain existing relationships. You know, David and I wrote a book, despite the fact that we didn't see each other once in person during that time period. You can do things remotely and hybrid is here to stay. But there are also many shortcomings of working remotely. One of the things that comes out of both Nick's work and work by our students, Natalia Emanuel and Emma Harrington, is even though call center workers are perfectly productive remotely, they are much less likely to be promoted. And you can see this here. The on-site promotion rate is about double that of the remote promotion rate. Pay attention to the lower lines, not the, not the upper lines. What's going on? What does it mean to be promoted as a call center worker? Well, it means that you have learned how to handle the difficult calls. It means that you are able to deal with that real pain in the neck from uh, Toledo, Ohio, or from Glasgow, who really wants something difficult from you, right? How would you learn how to do that if you weren't around other workers? How would your boss learn that you were good at handling those workers if you're not around other workers? Face-to-face -face contact is, is a tool for, for teaching, right? As all of us who've tried to teach remotely knows, it's incredibly hard. You see this in the work of Jose, Morales, uh, Jose Ramon Morales-Aria and Carlos Dabouin in the failure to hire remote workers. So this shows non-remotable employment and postings, non-remotable employment and postings both crashed during the immediate onset of COVID and then came back. Remotable jobs, right? They stayed in steady in terms of employment, but new hires were down until April when face-to-face -face contact resumed, right? People were just not hiring new, new workers if they weren't going to see them. While Microsoft tells us that their programmers were just as productive when they were at home, new hires for programmers were down 40% between February 2020 and November 2020. And recent research from Microsoft tells us that their pro programming teams are failing to make connections across different silos. And so in some sense, the creative process of connection is breaking down. Moreover, if we really think the future is going to be remote, that is a future that is even more unequal than the future that we have seen, right? If you think about May 2020, which is the high point of remote work for the U.S., 68.9% of the elite workers with advanced degrees were remote, whereas only 5% of workers without a high school degree were remote. Only 15% of high school graduates without college were, were remote. Really, if this is the future, it's a future with no jobs for the face-to-face -face service industries that provide employment for our less skilled workers. Now, part of the challenges 
going forward is this double shock to cities of pandemic and remote work comes in a period in which cities were always already fragmented, in which people were, were scared, people believed that urban successes were going to a select few, right? Even though, and you can see this on your right hand, there's an extraordinarily positive connection between density and productivity. The work of our colleagues, Raj Chetty and his co-authors shows that upward mobility, which is what you're seeing in the right, upward mobility is lower in cities. Cities, at least in the US, are failing to educate, are failing to provide opportunities for kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. In the US, we reduced crime in our cities drastically, but we did so with often brutal policing and by locking up millions of young men, leading to extraordinary anger and division between young people, particularly people of color and cops. So I think going forward, right, if the shock doesn't end quickly and if pandemics reappear, then the cost for cities and all the economy are enormous. And David's going to talk about health. If this does end quickly, right, if we got get it over next year, perhaps, right, then we still have major change. There will be a decline in demand for commercial space because some hybrid will continue. Commercial space will be more vulnerable than residential because people really are hungry to get back together, to connect with each other, even if they're not necessarily hungry to go back into the office. Cities will reallocate from the old to the young, right? And global talent has just gotten more mobile. And yet there's a real need to help the urban disadvantage, which means we have to think about smarter government rather than more or less government. We need to think about fewer regulations that bind small businesses and builders. And we need to constantly experiment and evaluate. And just finally, right, cities have been worse through far worse than this, right? And they have come back. And cities, especially London, will survive this one as well. Over to you, David. Thank you, Ed. Thank you to uh, LSE for hosting this, to Joe and, and everyone at LSE for hosting this. Um, I want to pick up on some of the themes that um, Ed, Ed raised, and in particular, to pick up on the, on the theme of, of pandemic. Let me just make sure you can, you can see this first. Okay, um, you, you know Ed really raised raised the point, which is which is absolutely true that um, an enormous it, an enormous impact, an enormous influence on the future of cities is going to be pandemic disease. That if we can control the era of pandemic disease like we did a century ago, then we're poised to have enormous urban growth. That's not going to solve all problems, but it'll help solve the problems. And conversely, if we're in a situation where pandemic is going to become more common and increasingly so, then that's going to just put extra strain on cities, on everything about country, but particularly about cities here. The, the thing, is, you, as everyone well knows, is that pandemics have become more common over time. They used to be much deadlier because we didn't know what to do about them, both in terms of prevention and um, treatment. Um, but, but now they're becoming more common, and that's in part because a disease that spreads anywhere in the world can go anywhere in the world, um, that starts anywhere in the world can go anywhere in the world very rapidly. So SARS, for example, started in China, and it spread around the world within a matter of days. Um, that's not the only one, of course. Before, uh, before COVID, there was SARS, and there was MERS, there was HIV AIDS, which, of course, is a huge uh, remains a huge problem around the world. There are various um, influenzas, uh, H1N1, and so on, all of which have the feature that they spread quite rapidly and more rapidly than the tools that societies have developed to prevent those spread, those spreads. So the, the part of what we do in the book is we try to look at what is it that countries can do about it. And before trying to look at that, I just want to make one comment, which is, you know, we're going to have to spend money to address the issue. And the question is, is that money going to be well spent? Um, the thing about pandemic disease is that the cost of pandemic, the cost of a pandemic is enormous. So these are from calculations that I had done with Larry Summers um, for the US economy, where we had estimated that the cost of, of COVID-19 was going to be about $16 trillion by the time all was said and done. I don't want you to take a, a specific value, you know, that's roughly, you know, 
close to a year's worth of GDP, roughly $200,000 for a family of four. That includes both economic loss and uh, health loss. I don't want you to take this as a hard and fast number. What I want you to take from this is that the cost of pandemic are enormous. And in many ways, indeed, the way that I think about some of this is that a lot of things that people do now have become luxury goods, particularly services have become luxury goods. So, you know, people were engaged in leisure and hospitality and restaurants and so on. We decided we could go without those if we needed to. And so that, so with, with a kind of leisure economy, pandemic disease is going to become an even bigger issue. And that's particularly going to affect people in cities. And that's why we saw just enormous unemployment across cities. And thank, thankfully, the welfare uh, the, the government stepped in to help people, but we're not sure that could happen all the time. So this cost is enormous. And so relative to that cost, anything that countries can do to reduce uh, pandemic, both the, the probability of a pandemic and the extent to which it affects people will clearly be worth it. So I'm not going to worry about the cost side. I'm going to think really just about the effectiveness side. So there are three lessons that we draw, and I want to go through them. The first one is a global lesson, um, which is uh, has to do with international organizations for reducing the spread of pandemic disease. You know, one thing we note in the book is that you could think about two different threats that the world has faced. The first one is the threat of nuclear war, and the second one is the threat of pandemic disease. And in the case of uh, nuclear war, we developed um, incredible, uh, we, we devoted incredible resources to trying to prevent nuclear war with the, with the Soviet Union. We set up a whole structure through NATO to uh, uh, prevent war. Um, and that was very successful. And, you know, sort of giving a well-funded, not, not exorbitantly funded, but a well-funded organization that, you know, had a very clear mission, which was to prevent war, not to appease anyone's psyche, but to, 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 to make sure the world was safe from, from pandemic disease, from, from nuclear war. In the case of pandemic disease, surely that is now a bigger threat than nuclear war is, whatever you think of the, the risk of nuclear war. Surely pandemic disease uh, becoming worse is an even bigger threat. And yet the institutions have not evolved. So we do have a World Health Organization, which performed relatively poorly during uh, COVID, as it performed relatively poorly during the Ebola outbreak of roughly a decade ago in West Africa, um, in part because it's um, uh, beholden to member states for countries in the way that NATO needed the, the money, but the money was secure. So it didn't have to worry about offending countries. So for example, the World Health Organization echoed China's line because China was a big funder of the World Health Organization. Um, and uh, it didn't want to harm the economies in West Africa. So it didn't declare an Ebola outbreak there and so on. And all of that's just a very bad way to go about dealing with a scientific issue, which is to, to bring politics into it. We need to be able to police countries, that is make sure they're doing things that are uh, low risk and not doing things that are high risk, promote sanitary interventions like clean water and sewers, what the, the rich world did a century or two ago, regulate human animal, animal interactions, monitor all breaks, all sorts of things about containment and isolation and so on. And that's going to have to happen by rich countries paying into an organization um, that probably looks, that, that not probably, that looks more like NATO than the World Health Organization. And so that's the first part, which is that our international institutions are not up for the task. I should say, you know, relative to these two, that the pandemic, preventing pandemic is clearly even harder and we still devote less energy to it as a world. From the international, I want to go to the national, and the national has to do with healthcare systems. Um, many healthcare systems performed well during the pandemic. Typically, those healthcare systems were in East Asia. So, uh, Taiwan, South Korea performed well, Australia performed well. Um, uh, a number of other countries, Germany performed uh, well, so not all there, uh, but many did poorly. Perhaps the, the sort of uh, state of the art example of doing poorly was the US. 
which spends $4 trillion on medical care. And of course, what we learned was that $4 trillion was not enough to treat a pandemic well. Um, that's of course the, the sort of joke about it which, is that it, it, which is that the $4 trillion is not really devoted to that. And the thing about the, the medical care systems in most rich countries that made them be very difficult is that the medical care systems are not really set up for public health. They are set up for private health. So they are set up for somebody is sick and they have high medical bills. And so the system pays that. They're not really set up to how do we promote the health of the public? The countries that did very well are the countries that have very robust public healthcare systems. So they do contact tracing and they do isolation and they do a variety of things like that well. Um, and in fact, what's happened in a lot of rich countries, particularly the US, but also a lot of European countries, is that that has been squeezed out over time by spending on the acute medical care system. Um, Single-payer countries are better. So, for example, I judge the, the UK as having done better than the US because the UK can sort of see the benefits of spending more on, on public health that way than the US can. But even still, there was a lot of uh, enough failure to go around. And of course, um, uh, uh, the countries that did the best were the ones that really took much more of a public health than a private health approach to it. Um, one of the things about the U.S., as it is true about many European countries, not quite as much, but still a little bit, is that the U.S. medical care system, it, there is, the, the government is very hands-off on what it wants. So the government, unlike with defense, where we say we want to prevent invasion, we want the following uh, uh, troop levels and, and technology and so on, we say, well, we'll pay for stuff that the doctors deem to be appropriate. And if they don't deem it to be appropriate, then, you know, enough, maybe we'll pay a little bit more for it, but we're not going to go around that. And that's really a very poor way to run something when you have very specific requirements, like I really need it to be the case that the health of the population is protected in the case of pandemic disease. So the so national governments are really going to have to learn a lot here, and they're going to have to reorient. Of course, we knew that about the US. But again, what the pandemic does is it adds to that. And I think it's going to add in some European countries as well, although it'll vary a bit from country to country. Um, so that's our second lesson, national. Our third lesson is local. And that has to do with the variability of health, not just across large areas, that is um, Europe versus uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or the US versus Latin America, and not just across country like uh, Northern Europe versus Southern Europe, and not just within regions of the country like London versus uh, uh, areas outside of London, but even within every area. So I'm showing you here two maps. One is New York life expectancy and one is London life expectancy by area. The London one is sort of like a tube map and the New York one is sort of like a, 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 a census tract map. And in each of them, you can go roughly 10 miles, roughly 10 minutes and reduce life expectancy by roughly 10 years. And that's just really extraordinary. And it's extraordinarily telling. Now, of course, there, there are several reasons to care about this. One is that um, we want people to be healthy. And it's just terrible if people in New York are living 81 years or 85 years in midtown Manhattan and 74 years in the outer part of the Bronx. Um, but the other reason to care is that um, poor health anywhere is a cause of disease everywhere. So it turns out, even though people in Midtown Manhattan do not interact on a daily basis, you know, do not go into Brownsville, that's the area with very low life expectancy in the Bronx, they don't go into Brownsville and people from Brownsville, while they do go into Manhattan, may not be going into the richer areas, they're all connected because people from Brownsville interact with other people from the Bronx and people from other people in, 
and other people in the Bronx going to Manhattan and they work in offices there and they work in stores there and people from Manhattan commute back and forth. And so the degrees of separation, if you will, between uh, rich, higher, uh, longer life expectancy areas and poor, lower life expectancy areas is incredibly small. And we sort of observe that, which is that anywhere where there's risk factor in a disease, risk factor for a disease, you have that disease outbreak and then that, that threatens everywhere in the city. In the case of New York, of course, it started with rich people in, in Westchester, north of the city, but then it rapidly spread into the poorer parts of, of of the Bronx COVID did. And you see that with HIV AIDS and you see that with every infectious disease that you just get to spread um, uh, everywhere. And so we're going to have to worry more about our fellow citizens, risk behaviors, smoking, obesity, unsafe sex, sharing needles, all sorts of things like that, that are uh, unfortunately common and that we've sort of put aside, but, but we can't if we really wanna think about the health of cities. So here's sort of the scary picture, which is, you know, and, 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 and these are, you know, the Wellcome Trust in the UK has been, uh, has been pushing this uh, for quite a while, which is that, um, you know, the, 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 the vast bulk of death of human population over time has been from communicable diseases, um, from pandemic disease. And what we really do not want to do is add to that. And in some sense, uh, COVID, we have sort of gotten lucky that COVID was not deadlier than it was. Both uh, SARS and MERS were actually deadlier than, than COVID was. But I don't think we can rely upon luck to, 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 to keep us healthy. And we're going to need uh, more policy action to do that. And so that's one of the, one of the big themes of our book is how to think about that, those policy actions. Let me stop there. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Uh... Ed and David, um, fascinating, uh, thought-provoking, frightening, uh, but a message of hope there. And that would be my first question to you. Um, both of you are well known for being optimists, for um, arguing that there are policy solutions to intractable social problems. Um, you know, the triumph of the city uh, it was the title of Ed's last book, and yet the opening lines of this book are Cities Can Die, Urban Triumph is Never Guaranteed. And you end your concluding chapter is entitled A Future with More Hope Than Fear. It's quite tentative. So a question to both of you is, um, did this collaboration, this engagement, make you more optimistic or less? Uh, has COVID tempered? your optimism. And then I'll put a couple of questions because I think we've got a short, uh, a short time before I open it up. So the other one um, relates to the international sphere and policy. Um, I think, David, your argument about NATO is very compelling, although I would be interested in what you think about it being uh, less independent of uh, national fickleness um, uh, post-Trump. Um, but even more generally, um, the international policy context is one of um, greater isolationism, protectionism, uh, anti-popular anxiety and anti-sentiments uh, about aid. In the UK, uh, we have just reduced our aid budget quite dramatically um, and our aid sanitation by 80%. So how would you then talk to policymakers about um, the advocacy in your book about the need to invest Western countries, industrialized countries, to invest in sanitation abroad for the good of all 
because as you point out, David, germs don't carry passports. So I'll put those to you once as you wish, and then uh, we'll hand over to our audience for questions. Do you want to go first, David, or, or shall I? What's, uh... Uh, why don't you go first, Ed? Okay, I'm, I'm going to leave you the second one, but I'm going to I'm going to focus on on uh, optimism. So you're right. It's it's a in some sense it's a less optimistic book than the last one. Um, it's less celebratory, but I am still deeply and fundamentally optimistic about the amazing things that happen when people connect with each other in cities. And in some sense, our collaboration only reminds me of how much I have to learn from David as much as I have to learn from so many people. And that's fundamentally the greatest thing about cities is our ability to learn from other people. But there is certainly more anger in this book. And there is anger about policies and implementation of policies that have badly failed our cities, and particularly the most vulnerable members of our cities. It doesn't mean that there aren't solutions. We think there are the solutions, but we are both, I think, it's fair enough to say, frustrated about the relatively slow progress on them. You know, to take one example, I've been on the sidelines of uh, American education reform for the last 20 years. And I would say in the early 2000s, I was much more hopeful about America's big city school systems actually making meaningful reforms uh, and changing things. I I am much less optimistic today. This has proven to be a very intractable beast. This is a very entrenched entity that is very hard to move. And so we still think there are things to do. There are still things for the federal government to do, but they have to be smarter. They have to be slyer, right? They have to involve workarounds like vocational training program that teaches people how to be programmers or to be plumbers, right? Does so outside of the existing school system after school, on weekends, on the summer, competitively source it, have pay for performance. You can have competition, right? You can have for-profits provided. You can have trade unions provided. You can have community colleges provided, right? But, you know, you only pay for performance. And the beauty of, of vocational training is you can tell whether or not, you know, someone has learned how to program at the point of graduation. So you really can, you know, can pay for performance. I think similarly, I, I, we're more hopeful about policing, but, Policing was 20 years ago sort of seen as being an unmitigated triumph. But I think, and I said this in triumph, although I said, you know, feel, feel, felt the need to strongly, strongly restate it, that it was a very half one triumph, right? It's a, it was a triumph of safety, but only one at the expense of locking up millions of young men and treating millions of others with far too little respect and decency on the street, right? That only changes if we have meaningful police reform that actually prioritizes a dual mandate, which you've actually always had in the UK. So this is a much less relevant thing for the UK, but we've got to expect our police in the US not just to prevent crime, but also to treat every American, right, of whatever color with, you know, kindness and the respect that they they deserve. And of course, you know, I will not talk about the, the you know, the failures of, of a system that can spend $4 trillion and come up with this muck. Uh, and I'll hand it over to David on, on this. It takes talent to do that, Ed. It, it, it's really very difficult to spend $4 trillion and not get, and, and just, just have so much of it go for so bloody little. Um, you know, as you said, Joe, it, it, it's sort of, it's much more fun to be optimistic than to be pessimistic. Um, and particularly if you study, you know, public economics, which is uh, my formal background and Ed's, uh, part of Ed's background as well you're sort of ingrained with the sense that government can do certain things well. Um, I guess I, so, so it, uh, the way I would frame it to a policymaker is not that I'm giving aid at all. So I would not talk about aid at all. I would talk about, we need to protect our people and this is how we're going to protect our people. And we're going to protect our people by, you know, telling, you know, just take one different example that we raise in the book, which is pharmaceutical companies, um, 
dumping, uh, producing in India, dumping into the local river and thus produce more likely to produce antibiotic resistant uh, bacteria there that could then spread around the world. So say, look, we're going to, we need, and there's no way they could do that in a rich country because that's just not, you're just not going to, you're not allowed to do that, but in countries with laxer controls and so on, you just got to say, look, I'm sorry, you can't have those laxer controls. And on the one hand, you sort of um, impose penalties on the countries. You say, look, if you're going to do that, we have to have much tougher standards for how who can go in and out of your country. And, you know, maybe we're going to have to screen everybody that comes in and out. And maybe your access to the global trading system is going to be uh, slower. You know, you're going to have the old version of the access to the global trading system because we have to make sure that we can stop pandemic disease before it spreads around the world. Or you can choose plan B, which is where we give you financial help and then you clean this crap up. So it's, um, it, 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 I, I would sort of do, I would sort of do it as kind of our own health and safety, not as a global public good. Um, one of the questioners raised the issue of climate change, and that is in some ways a third dimension that is, um, you know, nuclear war, uh, pandemic disease and climate change. And there actually the world has been in the past few years stumbling towards doing something uh, together. And, you know, there are now various countries that get together and, and stuff. So it's not been pretty, but it's been progress in the right direction. I think we're behind that in pandemic health because we sort of coasted for so long and we're going to have to catch up um, and hopefully leap, leapfrog there. But I, I, I think post, you know, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I hope that posed the right way. It can, um, uh, it, it can do well. And just one final point, which is, you know, there was very little questioning of NATO when the, when the primary uh, goal was still super important and it's only after things, after it's so successful that people then sort of say kind of naturally, like, do we still need this? What is it still doing? Stuff like that. And that's, to- and that's totally reasonable uh, thing to do. But I- I'm sort of struck by how much um, uniformity there was while, while the uh, threat was still real. Thanks, David. Um, so we've got lots of questions coming in. Um, there's... Uh, two that I'm going to toggle, uh, and I think probably for Ed, uh, Sabah Haroon, who's a prospective LSE student, says, I'm curious as to how you believe urban planners could contribute to reducing these impacts during this age of isolation, when we don't utilize public spaces uh, due to self-isolation. And then Ricky Burdett, who's the director of LSE Cities and well-known to you, asks, did your research suggest that any particular model of urban governance was more effective in responding to the challenges of the pandemic? And then um, to David from Marianne, an LSE alumnus, building on Joe's point, in many countries we see a populist backlash against actions by multilateral organizations. What do you think would be ways for a new international organization to be developed to counteract um, the problem and to still have impact. So perhaps uh, you could be going along with those, and I'll collect some more. Sure, I'll begin. I'll begin with uh, my old friend Ricky, and and uh, thank you so much for for watching. Uh, in terms of national government, I mean, David already alluded to the tremendous differences that we saw in the quality of particularly East Asian uh, governments. But you know, I think we also want to call out we. we Treat Yacinda Ardern of New Zealand as a hero as well. And the thing that we think is really important about the New Zealand example is that when she locked down the country, she tested the asymptomatic and she only reopened when she knew the disease had gone. Right. That shows a reliance on science. 
And where science really means that you have the humility to learn. It means not knowing all the answers to begin with, but recognizing that you need to actually go into this with knowledge. So, you know, the governors of Florida and Texas, they reopened too, but they reopened on a prayer, right? And they launched themselves into a massive uh, summer wave of it last summer. And so the, the recogn- recognizing the limits of your own knowledge really was a crucial element to this. In the U.S., it was states that really made the difference, it was state policies that, that mattered rather than local policies. Cities had relatively little choices or impact over things. And most of the local regulations on letting people move around or not didn't have much of an impact, both in the U.S. and Brazil, where I've also done work on this. Pretty much people stopped moving around out of fear, not out of local regulations, and the local regulations ended up being fairly irrelevant. So it was, you know, in the early ages of the pandemic, there was this big, you know, angst-ridden policy discussion as, you know, do we preserve the economy and do preserve our health? The truth of the matter is they never had that option, right? People were going to stop going out regardless of what the rules were, and they didn't need to spend so much time on it. I will say in terms of state governments in the U.S., right, The one obvious policy thing that we screwed up on in in America was we failed to protect the nursing homes, right? And that that should have been obvious by March. We already saw from the Italian data that age was, you know, was brutal. We didn't focus enough on obesity because America has a unique obesity problem, but that was the other comorbidity that was particularly terrible. But we really should have, from the beginning, made sure we protected the nursing homes. And, you know, if we had to pay our, you know, underpaid nursing home workers, triple pay, quadruple pay to make sure that they stayed at one nursing home, didn't traipse around the, the disease from nursing home to nursing home, that would have been worth it, you know, 100 times over in terms of, of life saved. In terms of urban planning, I think, you know, many features of space have you know, proven incredibly important on this. I don't think we have the same absolutely critical role of in urban infrastructure today that we did during the 19th century, where in a waterborne pandemic, right, the sewers were just absolutely vital. In a mosquito-borne pandemic, getting rid of swamp was absolutely vital. Here, it's not quite as vital with airborne pandemics, but it still can make a huge difference. And I think in terms of the things that we, that we saw and that we observed that, that were really special, right? Having some urban parks was just great. People really needed the space to get around. It was having open air seating for people to eat was just great. Uh, Having piazzas was just great. And getting rid of cars was something I think that all of us who are urbanists really relished at, at, uh, at this moment. I think one thing that came out of the pandemic, though, that I really want to push back on is the idea of a 15 minute city being a new paradigm for urban planning. And I want to stress that when I think urban 15 minute city, I hear, you know, I think of the ghetto walls rising ever higher in American cities. I think of locking up the townships in South Africa, right? I think the great cities are ones that are not segregated, where people are able to connect across neighborhoods, connect with each other, um, find opportunity everywhere. And I think thinking about our cities as being fragmenting into little neighborhoods, into little enclaves where the wealthy can protect themselves, right? That's about the worst idea I can think of. So I really want to push back on that. Okay, over to you, David. Uh, so Marianne raises an excellent question about, um, you know, backlash to multilateral organizations. And it's not surprising that, you know, the two countries that you'd worry about the most would be the U.S. and the U.K., Brexit and Trump um, in, in terms of uh, in, in, in terms of that. Um, the um, So I don't know that I have a great answer, but let me give a, a couple of thoughts, which is um, I think it helps for organizations to have a very defined mission. So the, the more sprawling the mission, the, 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 the worse it is, because then, you, you know, it, it just sort of goes into everything. And I think that was part of the issue with the EU and Brexit and so on was 
the sense that it was meddling in everything. So I, 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 obviously, you know better than I. But but so I think it, that's part of it. And I also think um, it helps if the budget is sufficiently secure that you're not worried about, you know, if I offend this particular member state, then my budget's going to be cut and so on. That it has to be solid enough, on solid enough ground and muscular enough, but not so expensive. That is, NATO was never that expensive. It was always going to use troops and resources from the countries and so on, not, not, not build a parallel system to that. Um, we, you know, ha- had we had no successes to look at, I think this would have been much more pie in the sky, but there are successful multilateral um, institutions. They, they, to some extent, they break down over time and that probably reflects maybe the need for them isn't there as much or overreach on their part. So I think um, starting off focused. And then the other thing I would say is um there's a real mis- there's a real distinction between sort of technical aspects and uh, and more I'll call them political aspects, but really sort of um, you know the technical mission of what one does and and then all the stuff around that. And those organizations that have been most successful in the U.S. are things that really have a technical mission. Like I mean, people are upset about our Centers for Disease Control and our Food and Drug Administration, but at least they understand that those are a bunch of scientists trying to make scientific assessments. And that that's part of the key for this is that, you know, be seen and really be doing just the scientific part of it and not try to intermingle that with other things. Thanks for great uh, answers and much more food for thought. Um, we've got uh, a question coming in uh, from Zane Pimpakun from the Asia Institute of Technology. Thanks for your great presentation. I wonder what the shareable lessons to be learned are from different kinds of disasters um, and are there challenge- opportunities as well as challenges coming out of these disasters? Um, from Alessio at the Development Planning Unit at the Bartlett School of Architecture on the inequality of the remote workplace. Should we we recommend more or less technology in the workplace? Do you think we should do more to bridge the digital divide or focus on policies for better good jobs in the first place, like better sick pay contracts and so on? So do you want to have a go at those and then I'll collect some more for you? Let me do one on the opportunity side, just to, you go ahead, just to barge into Ed's domain for a second, but just, and then we'll see if Ed agrees with this. Um, one of the, so, and it's about what happens if businesses are using less of downtown? You know, what happens if, you know, businesses decide to stay, to, you know, they don't, you know, they, people don't need to come in every day. Maybe they need to come in half the time, you know, so suppose business, big businesses cut their footprint by 20 or 30% in a big city. What would that mean? And Ed and I went back and forth on this a lot. And I kept saying, Ed, wouldn't this be disastrous and so on. And Ed, Ed kept telling me, no, you're wrong, David. And then he sort of convinced me. So let me tell you what it is that he convinced me of. He said, look, suppose that big businesses sort of got out of cities a bit. Well, there are two, at least two other things that could happen. One is, you know, you could have more small business startup, like small businesses priced out of many cities, London and Boston and New York and San Francisco. You can't start a small business you know, anything that requires any space, you can't, you can't afford the space for it. So, so as you free up that, maybe you get space for that. And second, by the way, David, he didn't add you idiot, but this is clearly what he was thinking. But second, David, you know, we, we have a housing shortage 
And, you know, here we have lots of young people who want to live in cities. And of course, they can't live in San Francisco because you have to be a bazillionaire to live in San Francisco. And they can't live in London and they can't live in New York and they can't live in Boston. And like, so they're being pushed out in the edges. And then you're having all these fights at the edges of cities about who's allowed to be there and what type of neighborhood it is and so on and so forth. And maybe freeing up some of that space will allow some of those people to live there. So any city where there is alternative use that's readily available, I think this does create an opportunity to say, you know, I don't want you know, David Cutler to effectively have two places in the city. One is his home and one is his office. Maybe he only needs 1.4 areas in the city. And then maybe the, that extra 0.6 can be used for other purposes that would be really quite valuable. And I think at least uh, phrased that way, I think Ed had a, had an ex, had a terrific point, which is that, you know, that, that that's right. Now, you what you worry about are cities where there aren't people lining up to take advantage of that and where that 0.6 of office space does not turn into something valuable. It turns into, you know, empty, empty, empty buildings and, and empty urban space. But in the absence of that, there's, I think, a lot of opportunity that's there. So that's at least a part of the opportunity. Now, now Ed will, will, will tell you why I got it wrong, but nonetheless, um, that's at least a, a one, one place for it. That was great, David. Better, better than I could have done it, certainly. Um, on job creation or better jobs versus new technologies, it can't be an either or, right? We, we need to do both. Um, and you want to think of this as slightly different populations. So for the young, you want to figure out what you can do to create technological capacity really everywhere, right? In every, in every disadvantaged neighborhood, in every community that's left behind. In the U.S., and I do apologize slightly that there are aspects of the policy advice here that tend to be U.S.-centered. Uh, because, in fact, you know, we are, first of all, more comfortable criticizing our own governments than we are criticizing other governments. And secondly, there is a sense in which policy advice is, is very particular to particular settings. But I think the basic point that we want to train people to use technologies is true universally, right? It's true in India, it's true in England, it's true in, it's true in the U.S. The right means for doing that may differ, may in some cases be appropriately to be done, you know, through private schools. In the case of India, we have a good track record of, of inexpensive private schools during working well. It may be done better through a national education system, uh, or it may be better done through something like the vocational training program that I suggested earlier. In the U.S., part of the problem is our teacher tenure system means that it's very hard for, you know, old dogs to new, to learn new tricks, which David and I can both attest to, being somewhat old dogs in the educational game. Um, and so in terms of teaching kids to do te technology, it's really helpful to have a flexible system where you can bring in 23-year-olds to teach them what they're supposed to do in terms of uh, new technology on this. Um, job creation, you know, I am big on the view that the prior to 2020, America's largest unsolved social problem was the rise of prime age male joblessness, right? When I was born in 1967, one in 20 prime aged men were jobless, right? For most of the past decade, more than 15% of American males aged 25 to 54 have been jobless. And all the data we have shows that joblessness is a terrible curse, right? leading to far more misery than being a lower income worker. Because of course, a job isn't just an income. It's a sense of social connection. It's a sense of purpose. It's a sense of contributing something to society. And if you're talking about 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds, you're not going to get at them with some pre-K program or with a, with a uh, vocational training for teenagers. You really have to do something on the job creation side. So uh, I think in some sense, this involves subsidizing employment and maybe even subsidizing employment more in places where joblessness has become more endemic. On lessons from urban, um, from, from disasters, uh, 
I, I'm not going to, you know, I think David did this perfectly. I'm just going to say, I, I have a new working paper out called Urban Resilience, which is coming out in the, in the journal Urban Studies. And it, it really does emphasize that typically cities have been fairly robust to natural disasters and much less robust to, to economic disasters. That actually economic disasters have been far more likely to lead to ruin than either disease or earthquake or even pandemic. You know, the work of Remy Jedwab shows that even the Black Death, you know, it took two centuries for cities to recover, but by, you know, 1550, they were kind of back to where they were prior to, to 1350 and the outcome. The only exception to that is when natural disasters politically destabilize. And that's exactly what you want to think of as happening in the case of Athens, where it sort of lost its bid to defeat Sparta, or in terms of Constantinople, where it, it destabilized an already weak Mediterranean world. And so the key is for us that we take this as, a, as an opportunity to strengthen our civic structures, to strengthen our polity, to push for more you know, knowledge-based debates, to push for more governments that are pragmatic and that are actually focused on solving actual problems, rather than devolving into the clan-based acrimony that has so often roiled our polities in recent years. Thanks to you both. I feel as if I've done um, a very poor job of representing the wonderful uh, slew of questions we've had. There are a couple um, of key issues that are coming out from them. One is you've talked about pandemics and nuclear war uh, and war in general as big uh, issues that affect cities and cities affect them. But what about climate change? Lots and lots of questions on climate change. So any thoughts, even perhaps for a new book? Absolutely. Uh, so we were only able to take on one natural disaster at a time. Sorry, Joe, over, over, to, over to you. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> and the other, the other cluster of questions to throw back at you is social mobility. Is social mobility um, and inequality an issue that is going to undermine the hope vis-a-vis -vis the fear? What can cities do about uh, equalizing and encouraging uh, social mobility? So perhaps if we can end with those. David, do you want to go first on this or? Uh... Yeah, let me just take the climate change. I think that is um, along with um, along with pandemic and nuclear war. Those are the three big, big global threats. And I sort of alluded to it <clears throat> very briefly. I think the world is staggering towards towards something there. Uh, one one issue that in which climate change is a little bit different than the others is that at least currently there's more of a belief that technology can play a big role in preventing it. That is by developing, you know, uh, forms of energy that are less polluting and, you know, disseminating those around the world and solar and wind and hydrogen, whatever else it is. And so, so there's a, another part of government which gets involved, which is the kind of R&D part of government. And indeed, um, we have sort of substitute governments like the Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, you know, other organizations that are sort of investing a lot in those things as well. And so, so, so in some sense that, that one has another dimension. We're unlikely to, you know, technologically, you know, invent a thing that prevents the possibility of pandemic, the way that we can re reduce our use of fossil fuels. But that is absolutely a, a key issue. And I've been, I've been sort of impressed, particularly um, in the past, you know, decade or so, too late, but in the past decade or so, how much the world has done on climate change, or certainly how much attention many of the world's leaders are putting on it. And I think even most most business, at least in rich countries, understands that this that something on climate change is going to happen, and they just want it to happen, and you know, get on with it, and let let let's let's move on with our lives. Well, that certainly is cause for optimism. 
And so, um, so the the I, I think you know the reason why we didn't you know we didn't strike climate change is precisely it's related to the fact that there were twenty questions on it in the Q and A, which is that there is a well you know. The world understands, or at least our, you know, our part of the world understands that climate change is a huge deal and that we have to do more to fight on it. I put a chapter in my last book uh, that was related to climate change about how cities are actually part of the solution because, in fact, smaller urban apartments and less mobility lead to less carbon emissions and that you know, we, the world has a lot to gain if the great growing uh, urban civilizations of India and China build up rather than sprawling out like the United States. Uh, in some sense, for me and you know, for, as economists, you know, we believe that there's a fairly straightforward, at least I believe there's a fairly straightforward policy answer, which will not be adopted. But, you know, having a global carbon tax is, is a fairly straightforward thing, if, if only we could get to that. I am more interested and worried about the uh, you know, adaptation side rather than the mitigation side of it. And I'm particularly worried about dealing with low-lying coastal cities in the developing world where you have a real paucity of resources. And that I do expect, you know, in, in to finally write a book on cities in the developing world. And I expect that that will be at least one chapter, if not more, more than one chapter. But I don't fully understand the problem or how to solve it yet. But I am glad that so many people on this call are concerned about it because they're right to be concerned about it. On upward mobility, I think that this is exactly right, right? I mean, you know, urban inequality, which there is much to like about urban inequality, right? Cities have rich and poor people because cities are pleasant places to be rich and they are less terrible places to be poor. And so they attract the rich and the poor. And there is, you know, another word for that is diversity. And that's something to celebrate. And there's nothing to like about the, you know, fake equality of suburban areas that by limiting housing for the poor create a local equality that's, that's you know, uh, that's, that's, that's nothing that's good about that. And of course, urban inequality is ancient, right? It was Plato who wrote in the Republic that every city of whatever size is in reality two cities, one a city of the rich and one a city of the poor, and they are perpetually at war with each other. Uh, the However, this inequality is only bearable if cities are fulfilling their historic mission of turning poor children into middle income and wealthy adults. And they are clearly doing too little of that. I think education is one part of that, but entrepreneurship is another. And I think, you know, one of the things that we push in the book is, is allowing more freedom to flourish. It is outrageous in the U.S. that we regulate the entrepreneurship of the poor so much more than we regulate the entrepreneurship of the rich. You can start your Internet phenomenon in your Harvard College dorm and have a billion users and have possibly swayed an election before you have any regulators who think about you. On the other side, if you want to start, you know, your grocery store that sells milk products five blocks away, you have 15 permits to get through. That's an outrage. And we really have to make sure that we've made it possible for urban genius to flourish. And yet I want to just end by noting that cities have been en enabling collaboration, enabling miraculous things, miraculous insights, miraculous teamwork, uh, miraculous creativity for thousands of years. You know, and the age of urban miracles is very much not over. That's a great uh, note to end on, Ed. And thanks to both of you, <clears throat> Ed Glazer and uh, David Cutler for fantastic presentations, wonderful discussion. It's been a great pleasure for me to chair it, a wonderful opportunity for all of us um, and the very large uh, audience on the webinar. Thanks to all of you in the audience who've joined us. And um, we're very grateful to our two very eminent and engaging speakers to find time in your busy schedules to speak about your new book with us. And that can be found, if you're interested in the book, on the event listing. So thank you very much indeed to all of you.